Book Three, Chapter Two of Under the Witch's Moon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Under the Witch's Moon by Nathan Galazier. Book Three, Chapter Two. Under the Saffron Scarf. Once again the pale planets of night ruled the sky when Tristan emerged from his inn and took the direction of the Palatine. All memories of his meeting with the Lord Basil had faded before the import of the coming hour, when he was to stand face to face with him who held in his hand the fate of two beings destined for each other from the beginning of time and torn asunder by the ruthless hand of fate. There was not a sound, save the echo of his own footsteps, as Tristan wound his way through the narrow streets, high cliffs of ancient houses on either side, down which the white disk of the moon penetrated but a yard or two. At the foot of the Palatine Hill, cutting into the moonlight, the Colosseum rose before him, gaunt, vast, sinister, a silhouette of enormous blackness, pierced as with innumerable empty eyes flooded by greenish, ghostly moonlight. Necromancers and folk practicing the occult arts dwelled in ancient houses built with the honey-colored travertine, stolen from the hill of the Caesars. It was said that strange sounds echoed from the arena at night, that the voices of those who had died for the faith in the olden days could be heard screaming in agony at certain periods of the moon. Gigantic masses of gaunt masonry rose around him, as with fleet steps he traversed the deserted thoroughfares. In the greenish moonlight he could discern the tumbled ruins of arches and temples scattered about the dark waste. His gaze also encountered the frowning masonry of more recent buildings. The castellated palace of one of the Frescobaldi had been reared right across that ancient site, including in its massive bulk more than one monument of imperial days. As he approached the region of the Arch of the Seven Candles, as the Arch of Titus with its carving of the Jewish candelabrum born in triumph was then called, Tristan walked more warily. The reputed dangers of the Campo Vassino, knocking at the gates of his memory, he loosened the sword in his scabbard. He had by this time arrived at the end of the street, that curves towards the Arch of Titus, which commands the avenue of lone home oaks leading to the Appian Way. Suddenly a man emerged from the shadows. He was armed with sword and buckler, his body was covered with hauberk of mail, and he wore the conical steel casque in vogue since Norman arms served as the military model. Roger and Tristan confronted each other, the former's face tense, drawn, white, the latter with calm eyes in which there was the light of a great regret. An expression not easy to read lay in Laval's eyes, eyes that scanned Tristan from under half-shut lids. "'So you have come?' the stranger said brutally, after a brief and painful pause. "'I have never broken my word,' Tristan replied. "'Well spoken.' I shall be plain and brief, if you will own the truth. I have nothing to conceal, my lord." Roger's eyes gleamed with yet livelier malice. Where is the Lady Helene? Where is my wife? As God lives, I know not, yet I would give my life to know. Indeed, you may be given that chance. You are frank, at least. I may have wronged you in heart, my lord, but never in deed," Tristan replied. "'What I have seen, I have seen,' the other snarled viciously. "'Perchance this silent devotion accounts also for many other things. "'I do not understand, my lord.' "'Soon after your flight the Lady Helene departed, without a word. "'So you were pleased to inform me.' "'I was not pleased,' spat out Laval. 
How do you explain her flight? I do not explain, my lord. I have not seen or heard from the Lady Helene since I left Avalon. Then you still aver the lie. Tristan raised himself to his full height. I am speaking truth, my lord. Why, indeed, should she have left you without even a word? Roger eyed the man before him as a cat eyes a captured bird at a foot's distance of mock freedom. Why, indeed, save for love of you? Tristan raised his hands. Deep in my heart and soul, I worship the Lady Helene, he said. For me she had but friendship, else were I not here. A sainted pilgrim, sneered the Count, in the groves of enchantment, and for such a one she left her liege lord. His mocking laughter resounded through the ruins. You wrong the Lady Helene and myself. Of myself I will not speak. As concerns her, of her you shall not speak, save to tell me her abode. Of her I shall speak, Tristan flashed. You are insulting your wife. Take care, lest worse befall yourself, snarled Laval, advancing towards the object of his wrath. Tristan's look of contempt cut him to the quick. You think to bully me as you bully your menials, he said quietly. I do not fear you. Why, then, did you leave Avalon, if it was not fear that drove you? drawled Laval, his eyes a mere slit in the face, drawn and white. The utter baseness and conceit in the speaker's nature were so plainly revealed in his utterance that Tristan replied contemptuously, "'It was not fear of you, my lord, but the Lady Helene's expressed desire that brought me to Rome.' "'The Lady Helene's desire? Then it was she who feared for you? It was not fear for my body, but my soul.' "'Your soul? Why your soul?' "'Because my love for her was a wrong to you, my lord, even though I loved her but in thought.' On that night in the garden, you were embraced in thought? The leer had deepened on the speaker's face. A resistless something impelled, and you, a fair and pleasant-featured youth, beside Roger de Laval, her husband, and now you are here doing penance at the shrines at the Lady Theodora's shrine? What I am doing in Rome does not concern you, my lord, Tristan interposed firmly. I did not attend the Lady Theodora's feast of my own choice nor were you in her pavilion of your own choice. Yet a pinch more of penance will set that right also. "'I take it, my lord, that I have satisfied your anxiety,' Tristan replied as he started to pass the other. Laval caught him roughly by the shoulder. "'Not so fast,' he cried. "'I shall inform you when I have done with you.' Tristan's face was white as he peered into the mask of cunning that leered from the other's countenance. Perchance he would not have heeded the threat had it not been for his anxiety on Helene's account. He suspected that Laval knew more than he cared to tell. "'For the last time I ask, where is the Lady Helene?' The Count's form rose towering above him, as he threw the words in Tristan's face. "'For the last time I tell you, my lord, I know not,' Tristan replied, eye in eye, though I would gladly give my life to know. "'Perchance you may.' I have been told the Lady Helene is here in Rome. Wherefore is she here? Can it be the spirit that prompted the pilgrimage to her lost lover? Will you take oath that you have not seen her?" The speaker's eyes blazed ominously. Tristan raised his head. "'I will, my lord, upon the cross.' Roger's heavy hand smote his cheek. "'Liar!' A woman who at that moment crept in the shadows of the Arch of Titus saw Tristan, sword in hand, defending himself against a man apparently much more powerful than himself. 
For a moment or two she gazed, bewildered, not knowing what to do. Tristan, at first, seemed to stand entirely on the defensive, but soon his blood grew hot, and in answer to his adversary's lunge he lunged again, but the other held a dagger in his left hand, and with it easily parried the blade. The next pass she saw Tristan reel. She could bear no more, and rushed screaming towards some footmen with torches who were standing outside a dark and heavily shuttered building. Tristan and Roger de Laval rushed at each other with redoubled fury. Both had heard the cry, and their blows rang out with echoing clatter, filling the desolate spaces with a sound not seldom heard there in those days. It was a struggle of sheer strength, in which the odds were all against Tristan. He began to yield step by step. Soon a yet fiercer blow of his antagonist must bring him down to his knees, and he fell back farther, as a veritable rain of blows fell upon him. Four men, followed by a woman, rushed to the scene. "'Haste! Haste!' she cried frantically. "'There is murder abroad!' She fancied she should behold the younger man already vanquished by his more vigorous enemy. On the contrary, he seemed to have regained his strength, and was now pressing the other with an agility and vigour that outweighed the strength of maturity on the part of his adversary. All was clear in the bright moonlight, as if the sun had been blazing down upon them and, as the woman leaped forward, she beheld Tristan's assailant gain some advantage. He was pressed back along the arch towards the spot where she stood. What now followed she could not see. It was all the work of a moment. But the next instant she saw the elder man raise his arm as if to strike with his dagger. Tristan staggered and fell, and the other was about to strike him through, when, with a wild, frantic outcry of terror, she rushed between them, arresting the blow ere it could fall. Helene! A cry in which Tristan's smothered feelings broke through every restraint winged itself from the mouth of the fallen man. Tristan! came the hysterical response. Roger had hurled his wife aside, his eyes flaming like live coals under their bushy brows. Those whom Helene had summoned to Tristan's aid when she first arrived on the scene of the conflict, unacquainted with the cause of the quarrel, and doubtful which side to aid, stood idly by, since with Tristan's fall there seemed to be no farther demand for their services, nor did Roger's towering stature invite interference. In the heat of the conflict, with its attendant turmoil, none of those immediately concerned had remarked a procession approaching from the distance which now emerged from the shadow of the great arch into the moonlit thoroughfare. It was headed by four giant Nubians, carrying a litter on silver poles, from between the half-shut silken curtains of which peered the face of a woman. In its wake marched a score of Ethiopians in fantastic livery, their broad naked scimitars glistening ominously in the moonlight. The litter and its escort arrived but just in time. Ere Laval's blade could pierce the heart of his prostrate victim, Theodora had leaped from her litter and thrown her saffron scarf over the prostrate youth. With all the outlines of her beautiful form revealed through the thin robe of spangled gauze, she faced the irate aggressor, and her voice cut like steel, as she said, "'Dare to touch him beneath this scarf. This man is mine.' Laval drew back, but his glaring eyes, his parted lips, and his laboured breath argued little in favour of the fallen man, even though the blow was for the moment averted. With foam-flecked lips he turned to Theodora. "'This man is mine.' His life is forfeit. Stand back, that I may wipe this blot from my escutcheon." 
Theodora faced the speaker undauntedly. Ere he could reply, a woman's voice shrieked, "'Save him! Save him! He is innocent! He has done naught amiss!' Helene, whom the Count had hurled against the masonry of the arch, bruising her until she was barely able to support herself, at this moment threw herself between them. "'Who is this woman?' Theodora turned to Tristan's assailant. "'Who is this woman?' Helene's eyes silently questioned Tristan. Laval's sardonic laughter pealed through the silence. "'This lady is my wife, the Countess Helene de Laval, noble Theodora, who has followed her perjured lover to Rome, so they may do penance in company,' he replied sardonically. "'His life is forfeit. His offence is twofold. Within the hour he swore he knew naught of her abode. But since you claim him by ties this scarf proclaims, take him, and welcome. I shall not anticipate the fate you prepare for your noble lovers.' The two women faced each other in frozen silence, in the consciousness of being rivals. Each knew instinctively it would be a fight between them to the death. Theodora surveyed Helene's wonderful beauty, appraising her charms against her own, and Helene's gaze swept the face and form of the Roman. Tristan had scrambled to his feet, his face white with shame and rage, in whose eyes he read that which caused him to tremble in his inmost soul, he turned to Helene. Oh, why have you done this thing, Helene? Why? Oh, why? Roger de Laval laughed viciously. It was indeed not to be expected that the Lady Helene would find her recalcitrant lover in the arms of the Lady Theodora. With an inarticulate outcry of rage, Tristan was about to hurl himself upon his opponent, had not Theodora placed a restraining hand upon him, while her dark eyes challenged Helene. All the revulsion of his nature against this man rose up in him, and rent him. All the love for Helene, which in these days had been floating on the wings of longing, soared anew. But his efforts at vindication in this strangest of all predicaments were put to naught by the woman herself. "'Hear me, Helene! It is not true!' he cried, and paused with a choking sensation. Helene stood as if turned to stone. Then her eyes swept Tristan with a look of such incredulous misery that it froze the words that were about to tumble from his lips. With a wail of anguish she turned and fled down the moonlit path like a hunted deer. "'Up and after her!' Laval shouted to the men whom Elaine had summoned to the scene, and these, eager to demonstrate their usefulness, started in pursuit, Roger leading, ere Tristan could even make a move to interfere. Helene had fled into the open portals of a church at the end of the street. She tottered and fell. Crawling through the semi-darkness, she gasped and leaned against a pillar. She saw a small side-chapel, where before an image of the Virgin guttered a brace of tapers. But ere she reached the shrine, her pursuers were upon her. As, with a shriek of mortal fear, she fell, she gazed into the brutal features of Roger de Laval. His lips were foam-flecked, revealing his wolfish teeth. It was then her strength forsook her. She fell fainting upon the hard stone floor of the church. For a pace Tristan and Theodora faced each other in silence. It was the woman who spoke. Her voice was cold as steel. "'I have saved your life, Tristan. The weapon which my slaves have taken from you awaits the call of its rightful claimant.' She re-entered her litter while Tristan stood by, utterly dazed. But when the slaves raised the silver poles, she gave him a parting glance from within the curtains that seemed to electrify his whole being. After the litter-bearers and their retinue had trooped off, Tristan remained for a time in the shadow of the Arch of the Seven Candles. He knew not where to turn in his misery, nor what to do. 
In the same hour he had found and lost his love anew. End of Book 3 Chapter 2